Let us begin our sermon with prayer. Loving Lord, there are many misunderstandings and false teachings about your baptism. Therefore, we ask you to bless the words of today's sermon so that we may see the big picture that your baptism presents and have a clear understanding of our own baptism. Amen. Our text for our sermon is the gospel history according to the Apostle Matthew as recorded in chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to be baptized by John at the Jordan. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, because it's proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John let him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, really, John is confessing, I'm unrighteous. I need to be baptized by you, right? But Jesus says those words, Let it be so now. For it is necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. So today we're going to ask the question, how does Jesus' baptism fulfill all righteousness? And to answer that question, first we need to look at baptism for sinners. Uh, That would be your and my baptism, right? For we are sinners. That's why we need a Savior. And one of the things we want to understand about baptism is uh, what Jesus says when he talks to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 Uh, Verse 3 through 5, Jesus replied, Amen, amen, I tell you, unless someone is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Amen, amen, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. At this time when Jesus talks to Nicodemus, we're not told anything about Jesus and his disciples baptizing. It's John the Baptist who's doing that. And when he talks about being born of water and spirit, that has to be that baptism. I want to emphasize that because here in a minute we're going to talk about is John's baptism different than what uh, the, ours was. Uh, so Jesus had not officially called the disciples yet, although at this time he has uh, James and John, Peter and Andrew, Uh, Philip and Nathaniel following him, yet he makes it clear to Nicodemus, when you're baptized, you get a new spirit, right? That's the new person, the new man that is engrafted to Christ. So right away, one of the things we can say about baptism is it gives you the new person. Now, for adults, and this happened a lot in the early days of Christianity, what happens is they hear the word, They come to faith, then they come to baptism where that Holy Spirit is sealed in their heart. The Holy Spirit gives birth to that faith. But it's very clear that Jesus is telling us in baptism, you get the new person. And that stands strongly against the work righteousness where people think you make a decision for Christ, right? Because Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. If you have faith, it's thanks to the Holy Spirit convincing you by giving you the new man that the saving work of Christ applies to you. Now, it's after Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus that we're told in John chapter 3, verse 22 through 24, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing in the Aina near Salem because... There was plenty of water there. People kept coming and were being baptized, for John had not been thrown into prison yet. So this is the first time we hear about Jesus' disciples doing baptism, but they're right across there from John the Baptist. So if John the Baptist's baptism was different and didn't count, Christ would have corrected it then, right? 
So that really should answer the question. Another commentary, though, that you know is one of my favorite verses to go to when we want to understand what does baptism do for us takes place on Pentecost Sunday. That's when the flaming tongues appear above the disciples. And Peter, kind of acting as the spokesman in Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through 39, after the people who Peter just told, many of them were there shouting, crucify, crucify, 50 days earlier. He just told, you crucified the Lord. And they said, what do we do? And he says, uh, we're told, now when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, gentlemen, brothers, what should we do? Peter answered them, repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now, the Greek preposition that's used that gets translated as for the forgiveness of sins is ice. That preposition really is, you know, when you cross the finish line. Baptism crosses the finish line. It gives you forgiveness of sins. And you could translate that, although it would be clunkier English, resulting in the forgiveness of sins. Now, he also mentions they'll receive the gift, which is the Holy Spirit. So we've already covered that. The Holy Spirit gives birth to your new person. You get the forgiveness of sins. And he already mentions repentance, right? A change in mind. Because when you get the new person, you think totally different about God and sin and forgiveness because you've got that new person. And... You'll notice very clearly says the promise. What promise is he talking about? The first promise he's given is baptism. The promise is for you and your children. Many Christians think baptism is pretty much a ceremonial act in which they say, look, Lord, I'm giving myself, I'm dedicating myself to you. What's the emphasis on? It's not on God's work. And because of that, they'll deny baptism to children or infants because they figured they're not old enough to make such an adult decision. If there ever was a passage in Scripture that made it clear that baptism is for children and for all, it's here. Of course, Matthew 28, when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations by baptizing their name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, doesn't exclude anyone either. But this one specifically mentions children. But what about John's baptism? Well, if we go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 4, um, Mark tells us, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, once again, that preposition that's used that we translate for is that Greek preposition ice. So once again, this is easily translated, understood as resulting in the forgiveness of sins. So John's baptism gave the Holy Spirit, the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives, worked repentance, gave forgiveness. And where would John get the ability to do this? Because we're never specifically told that, John, that God suddenly comes to John and says, I want you to start baptizing. Well, in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, Luke tells us, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Trechonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. We've already covered if John's baptism wasn't doing the same thing as Jesus's when they were baptizing across the island from each other, Jesus would have spoke up. But God specifically spoke to John, gave him his commission, and this is when he would have told him, now I want you to baptize. Ah, but what about that confusion? 
What about that time in Acts when the Apostle Paul has to rebaptize people who were baptized by John's baptism? Well, let's take a quick look at that. That's recorded in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 5, where we're told, While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior districts and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? No, they answered. We've not even heard that the Holy Spirit was given. Paul asked, What were you baptized into then? They replied, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. What's going on there? Well, you'll catch, they weren't even told that they, uh, uh, they would get the gift of the Holy Spirit. They weren't baptized in the name of Jesus. They, were, they did say we were given John's baptism, but John wasn't alive to do that himself, right? And when it's all said and done, they're baptized in the name of Jesus. So you don't have to be a, a great detective to figure out somebody who may even have met well came up there and gave them a false baptism. Claiming it was from John, but remember John's baptism and John himself, his mission was to say those words, behold the Lamb of God. These people haven't even seemed to hear the name of Jesus, right? So this would be kind of like sometimes you get those Christian-based cults where like, if you look at them, they're not worshiping the same God we are. If they've been baptized in that cult, we re-baptize them because it's a false God. Well, these people in Acts, while they said they'd been given John's baptism, it was not the baptism John did. Something wasn't right, and so the Apostle Paul fixes that. So with that out of the way, we said we've got to look at what baptism does for you and I, because this is what it does for sinners, and we see baptism gives the Holy Spirit. It bestows gifts from the Holy Spirit. It results in forgiveness. It gives repentance, that is the change of mind, because it gives us the new person. So as we ask the question, how does Jesus' baptism fulfill all righteousness? We now understand what it does for sinners. But what does it do for Jesus? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we're told, God made him who did not know sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus is not a sinner. There's something different about his baptism, although it would be the same as ours in other ways. And we've got to understand exactly why Jesus came. And this is what we just celebrated in Christmas. Uh, Galatians 4, chapter 4 tells us, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son to be born of a woman so that he would be born under the law in order to redeem those under the law so that we would be adopted as sons. Jesus took on human flesh, true God who becomes true man, who is holy, who is sinless, so that he could keep the law perfectly for us. Everything God's law demands, Jesus did. Jesus was tempted in every way. In fact, right after his baptism, the Holy Spirit leads him out to the desert where he uh, fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And the, the devil does a pretty good job of trying to tempt him. But Jesus stands up to temptations for you and I. We call Jesus never falling into temptation. Jesus keeping the law perfectly for us in our place. We call that his active obedience. But of course, there's something else Jesus does for us. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, which was written 700 years before God took on human flesh, says, Surely he was taking up our weaknesses, and he was carrying our sufferings. 
We thought it was because of God that he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. But it was because of our rebellion that he was pierced. He was crushed for the guilt our sins deserved. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We've all gone astray like sheep. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has charged our guilt to him. We call it Christ's passive obedience. When your and my sins are put upon him, he puts them upon himself on the cross, and he suffers the punishment for us. So Christ is the righteous one. He's sinless. He keeps the law for us, and then he takes our punishment. And part of the acts of keeping the law would be doing all of those ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. So far, we've seen Jesus has no sin, so baptism wouldn't be washing sin away from Jesus. But we want to be very careful not to make baptism an act of the law. So, for example, the, the, the circumcision, as according to the rules given on Mount Sinai, was a ceremonial law. And Jesus kept that for us as well. Luke chapter 2, verse 21 says, After eight days passed, when the child was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Circumcision actually was pointing to the coming Savior, literally through the organ in which his DNA would be passed on until you get to Mary, for it was a virgin birth, right? So Jesus fulfills that. But you'll notice he says to John, let it be so now because it's proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. He says proper, not necessary. If he were being baptized as an act of keeping the ceremonial law for you and I, it would have to be necessary. Now, to make my point that I'm building up to, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, as Peter talks about, while the flood killed everybody, it actually, those floodwaters saved Noah and his family because it made the ark flow. So we're told, and corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the guarantee of a good conscience before God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is pure gospel. We've got to be careful not to make a ceremonial law out of it. And there are a lot of correlations between Old Testament circumcision and baptism, but we can't equate the two because then we'll be making baptism a ceremonial law. Now, certainly God wants sinners to be baptized, so God the Son also does that. But that's not the biggest picture we want to focus on in Jesus' baptism. And we want to be careful, like I said, not to equate but, uh, it with, with uh, circumcision uh, or to turn it into a ceremonial law. So, how does Jesus' baptism fulfill all righteousness? The ultimate answer is in his own words. Let it be so now, because it's proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. By the way, as a side note, this is the second statement chronologically of Christ to be recorded. The first is when he stays behind the temple and his mother comes to him and says, we've been worried sick about you. Where have you been? Didn't you know look in my father's house first? I've been doing his business. So this is a second statement, but it's temporal. This is not for all eternity. Let it be so for now. I'll deal with you and your sin later, John. Uh, but for now, this is something. And, and the word us. So it can't just be Christ being our substitute because John is included in that, right? Well, ultimately, it's here in his baptism that Christ fulfills the name Christ. As Luke chapter 3, verse 15 says, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might be the Christ. 
John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but someone mightier than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The Greek word Christ, or Christos in Greek, or uh, the Hebrew equivalent as we transliterate into English is Messiah, literally means anointed, anointed one. When we refer to the Christ as the Messiah or the Christ, we're saying he's the anointed one. And this is very important because, for example, in Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 2, verse 2, we're told, the kings of the earth take a stand and the rulers join together against the Lord and against his anointed one. When you were anointed in Old Testament times, that meant you began this public service, this public ministry. And in Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, we're told, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom from the captives and release for those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a cloak of praise instead of a faint heart, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord to display his beauty. Isaiah, in beautiful poetry, talking of the Savior, the Savior talking through Isaiah actually says, I've been anointed to save you. This is the biggest picture we want to understand. When Christ is baptized, it is making it abundantly clear he's now beginning his public ministry. He's the Savior. John participates in that, not because John's going to keep the law for us. No, no, no. But John's actually the guy to baptize him. And so it becomes very clear. This is the Savior, and he began his public ministry. It'll be three, no more than four years later when he'll be crucified. That's his passive obedience for our sins. So why is it a comfort for you? Because we have a sinful nature, and it's the puppet of the devil. And the devil has little tricks it does. He, he, he whispers in the ear of our sinful nature, and then we'll buy in. And say, ah, just do that sin. It's so small. No one will notice. And then you do it, and that same sinful nature being the devil's puppet goes, how could you? God could never forgive you. That sin is so big. What an awful person you are. And that sinful nature has a religion of his own, and it's quite a lie. That religion is that you earn forgiveness. And when that sinful nature is whispering those lies in our ears, we are able to tell it, no, our new man tells it, no, be quiet. I'm not the one who was anointed to be my savior. That's Jesus. You, as a priesthood of all believers, have the privilege of telling your neighbor, be that your brother, sister in Christ, or be that the first time they hear of Christ, when their sin is haunting them, uh-uh, you don't have to earn forgiveness. You're not the one God anointed to be your Savior. Jesus is. There were many false Christs that were coming, claiming to be Christ at that time, but none of them had the anointing that marked it out, that made it clear, this one is the Messiah. And John the Baptist knew that. He pointed to him, behold, the Lamb of God. In fact, we're given the ultimate reassurance in Matthew 3, verses 16 through 17. Right after, immediately after Jesus' baptism, we're told, after Jesus was baptized, he immediately went up out of the water. Suddenly the heavens were opened for him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and landing on him. And a voice out of the heavens said, this is my son whom I love. I'm well pleased with him. Christ's baptism fulfills all righteousness because it makes it abundantly clear 
He's the Savior. He's the one whose passive obedience and his active obedience saves us. Not you and I, not anyone else. And because of that, he's also the one, because he is the Savior, that gives our baptisms all the validity. Because when we are baptized, the Holy Spirit giving birth to that new person, we receive the blood of Christ, which results then in forgiveness of sins. As the Holy Spirit gives birth to that new person that's engrafted to Christ. And so we see Jesus' baptism fulfills all righteousness because it's making it clear this is the Savior, the righteous one, who is our substitute. Amen. Now to him who is able, according to the power that is at work within us, to do infinitely more than we ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.